I'm Angela Cantola. Um, I'm the assistant director of a program called the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program. Um, I've been doing this for a lot of years. Uh, it's a fascinating challenge and uh, a very interesting collaborative partnership. I've been with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service since graduate school. Um, it, the program that I'm going to tell you about is, as I said, is a collaborative partnership, and it continues on the theme that David began um, and of making a real difference in the world with regard to biodiversity. Um, our partnership in the Upper Colorado River Basin is designed to recover four species of endangered fish and to manage water. So we're doing two different things that to some people might seem mutually exclusive. Um, I want to start a little bit here with the Endangered Species Act, um, often called the ESA. And this landmark piece of legislation is considered to be one of the most comprehensive wildlife um, conservation laws in the world. Now, the purpose of the act, of course, is to conserve um, the ecosystems that endangered species depend upon and to conserve and recover listed species. So there might be a number of things that come to your mind when uh, we speak of the ESA, perhaps recovery of the bald eagle, um, potential rediscovery of the ivory-billed woodpecker, the return of the gray wolf, the historic case of the snail darter and the teleco dam, or perhaps some of the very well-publicized conflicts here in the Pacific Northwest over spotted owls and salmon. Um, as Christians, of course, we understand that uh, conserving and recovering endangered species is congruent with a number of biblical commands, the mandate to serve and keep the creation, uh, the story of Noah, the first preserver of species, God's declaration that the earth is his and everything in it, uh, certainly Christ's command to care for the least of these, and uh, finally, God's sacrifice of his son Jesus Christ for the whole cosmos. Um, it's also part of loving our neighbors, and those are both our human and our non-human neighbors. Unfortunately, in a few highly publicized cases, um, implementation of the Endangered Species Act has caused, uh, has really polarized and divided people, and they've become entrenched in what I call us versus them conflicts. And, um, and so they're entrenched in those conflicts and those controversies instead of loving one another and figuring out how to solve problems together. But that's not the whole story of the ESA, uh, both here in the Pacific Northwest and in partnerships around the country and probably in other parts of the world as well, but since we're speaking about the Endangered Species Act, we'll stay local in the U.S. Um, there are a number of, 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 of examples of lots of stakeholders getting together and working together to solve these kinds of conflicts that the ESA sometimes raises. Um, the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program is an example of just that kind of partnership. And it was established to address conflicts between the Endangered Species Act and water development. Uh, let me get just orient us a little bit geographically. This is the Colorado River Basin up here. I think there's a laser pointer over here, so I'm going to grab that. Um, and this basin, the, the Colorado River winds more than 1,400 miles um, from the Continental Divide clear down to the Gulf of California and Mexico. That drains a watershed of 244,000 square miles. The Colorado River supplies more water for consumptive use than any other river in the United States. Now, you can imagine that's, that's sort of an interesting fact, given the fact that 
given that, that that river doesn't have that much water in it, at least not compared to things out here in the Pacific Northwest or things back east where there's a lot more water in the world. Um, the water out of the Colorado River is used for irrigation, for urban areas, for recreation, wildlife, uh, fisheries, and a variety of industries. And in total, about 25 million people use water from the Colorado River Basin. The upper and lower Colorado River Basins are divided here at Lee's Ferry, essentially at Glen Canyon Dam, which impounds Lake Powell. What I'm going to be talking about today is what's going on in the upper Colorado River Basin. There are also some similar efforts in the lower basin, but can't talk about everything, so we're going to stick with the upper basin here. We have four long-lived, big river, warm water fish species that are listed as endangered in the upper Colorado River Basin. Now, these fish are believed to have thrived in the Colorado River for three to five million years, and they're not found anywhere else in the world. Um, the Colorado pike minnow is, uh, has a distinction of being the largest minnow in North America. It's, uh, historically, these fish got to be up to six feet long, and they could weigh up to 80 pounds. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big minnow, right? Um, and, and those were found primarily in the southern portion of their range in the lower Colorado River Basin. But they are big fish, and historically, they were the top native predator in the system. And they were sometimes called Colorado salmon uh, or Colorado River salmon. And the, uh, they, these fish can live 50 years or more. So we're not talking about, you know, short-lived, like, trout species and stuff. These are very unique creatures. Um, the second fish we're working on is the humpback chub. You see it here with its pronounced hump and its long nose and kind of overhanging snout and those little eyes. Um, this fish gets to be about 19 inches long and can survive more than 30 years in the wild. has a distinction of being found primarily in the canyon-bound reaches of the Colorado River. Um, then we have a razorback sucker, a uh, catastomid. It, it's another fairly big fish, can, get up to, can be about three feet long. It's uh, one of the largest suckers in North America. This fish can live 40 years or more. Finally, Gila elegans, and this, this really is a beautiful fish. So I, I love its scientific name. Uh, the bony tail gets to be about 20 inches long, and this fish also can live about 50 years in the wild. Um, and now historically, these fish were found throughout most of the Colorado River Basin, from Wyoming to Mexico. Their habitat and their numbers have been reduced significantly over the last century or so, and thus they're listing under the Endangered Species Act. So in the 1970s, um, well, first of all, remember, in, in the arid Intermountain West, life is all about water. And thus, in the late 1970s, when the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service took the position that any additional water depletions from the Colorado River Basin would constitute jeopardy to the continued existence of these endangered fishes, the proverbial train wreck loomed on the horizon. And those of you who are from the Pacific Northwest have often heard the whole Klamath Basin um, endangered species stuff referred to as a train wreck. Well, we, anyway, lots of those potentials out there. But in, we faced our issues in, in the early 70s, mid-70s, and basically had a situation where the fish were threatened, water use and development were threatened, uh, and everybody from agencies and stakeholders were on the defensive. And meanwhile, there was very little being done to recover the fish or to do the research that was necessary to figure out uh, how we would direct recovery actions. So the choices facing the parties at that point were to, um, were to file lawsuits, enforce the ESA, and escalate the conflict over water development, try to seek some sort of amendment or exemptions from the ESA, or simply to identify the facts and negotiate a solution. And, and thankfully, some, some good and far-sighted folks chose that latter course. And they did so because they realized there wasn't any other way to solve the problem, frankly. 
1984, um, federal agencies and states and environmental groups and water users sat down and began to negotiate. They recognized that these conflicts between the fish and water were a symptom of the problem. The problem is the fish are endangered. So, therefore, the solution would be to recover the fish. Now, I will grant you that back in 1984, I think they thought this was going to be easier than it has turned out to be. But nevertheless, they, they forged, a, you know, they, they did commit to do this. And in 1988, a cooperative agreement was signed by the Secretary of the Interior, the governors of Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming, the administrator of the Western Area Power Administration. And um, the geographic scope of this program was the Colorado River and its tributaries in Colorado, Utah, and Wyoming. The program partners then are three states, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming, four federal agencies, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, the National Park Service, and Western Area Power Administration. And then we have water users, environmental groups, and, and the Colorado River Energy Distributors Association, a power uh, group representative on board as well. So lots of different interests there. Um, and, and you might imagine it was slow going to start. Uh, it takes time for people who have uh, inherently different uh, vocational interests to come together and to work together. But today, this program, the Upper Colorado River Endangered Fish Recovery Program, is considered to be a model partnership for endangered species recovery. Recently won uh, one of the Department of Interior Cooperative Conservation Awards and uh, was probably the sort of the poster child for that award, in fact. And, and here's how I look at it. Um, in, in, uh, in, his, in the Pogo comic strip that was published on Earth Day in 1971, cartoonist Walt Kelly said, we have met the enemy, and he is us. Um, you know, I think the partners in the Upper Colorado River Recovery Program have accepted this truth. We admit that we're collectively responsible for the status of the fish, and so we're working together to recover them instead of getting stuck on blaming one another and, uh, for why the fish are endangered. And so I call this, my shorthand name for this program is the Love One Another Program <laughs> on that basis. A unique partnership is designed to recover the four endangered fish species in the Upper Colorado River Basin in a manner that's consistent with the Endangered Species Act, with interstate water compacts, and with state law. And what we do in this program is focus on the big picture of, endangered, of, of recovering these species of, with the objectives of downlisting and eventually delisting them, taking them off the endangered species list, uh, with the overarching goal of recovery to establish not, uh, naturally self-sustaining populations and to protect their habitat. That's a big challenge. Um, the threats to these endangered fish populations are the many changes to their habitat. There have been hundreds of dams constructed. River flows have been cut by about a third, and numerous non-native fish species have been introduced into the system. So these are not things that can be easily reversed. To address these threats, we have five key recovery elements in this program. Um, we're working to provide in-stream flows for the fish. We're restoring their habitat, managing non-native fishes, stocking endangered fish, and conducting research and monitoring. And we're working on all five of those um, simultaneously because you have to do all these things to recover the fish. You can't just focus on one or the other. In protecting in-stream flows, then, um, we are uh, working to identify and protect sufficient flows that will support self-sustaining populations of the endangered fish. And what we do is we work um, to acquire adequate stream flows and modify operations of federal dams to recreate more natural flow patterns in the river and thus provide the habitat that the fish need to spawn and to grow. 
We're also protecting flows through leases and contracts, improved irrigation efficiency, and cooperative reservoir operations. We recently um, cooperated with the enlargement of Elkhead Reservoir in northwest Colorado, provides late summer flows for the fish um, in the Yonker River. In another project, we um, were able to make significant improvements to irrigation efficiency in western Colorado and leave more water in the river uh, for the fish and created a win-win situation for both farmers and fish. And in fact, in our extreme drought in 2002, had this project not been in place, farmers wouldn't have had, uh, had water to, to irrigate their crops or it would have been much reduced. The second element of recovery is uh, habitat restoration, and that's kind of three different pieces. Restoring floodplains, um, because historically, you know, that's what rivers do. They flood, then people go along and build levees and create problems for wildlife. Um, so we're restoring some of those floodplain areas, restoring passage around dams, um, and then screening diversion canals to prevent fish from getting caught in them. And those diversion canals, that's where the irrigation diversions go. You don't, really don't want endangered fish in, ending up in farmers' fields. So we put these big screens on them, and that helps. Um, in floodplain restoration, we've uh, breached levees, uh, purchased easements, and sometimes outright purchased land in partnership with other agencies and willing landowners to reduce, uh, excuse me, to restore or acquire a number of floodplain habitats along the Middle Green River in Utah and in the Grand Valley area of Colorado. And uh, here's a map showing a number of our uh, fish passage and fish screen structures that we've built over in western Colorado. Um, we've had uh, the completion this spring uh, of fish passage at Price, the Price Stub Diversion, which is shown here in, in the pink. And that now allows fish passage all the way up uh, to about 52 miles of critical habitat that's been blocked to these fish for, since 1911. And, of course, once you get up above these irrigation diversions, then you have better habitat, more water, better habitat for the fish. So we're very excited about that recent completion. Um, and we also have screens on, on, uh, on this. This is not an active diversion. This is an active diversion. So we have a screen on that. We have a screen here. And we have a screen here at the Gunnison River. Um, and these are different kinds of fish passages. Um, you can see this one here at the Redlands Canal in the Gunnison River. This is what we call... Uh, kind of an active fish passage facility. The fish swim up through this uh, ladder structure and then they're sorted at the top and we only allow the, not the native fishes to go upstream. And we have a similar facility here at the Grand Valley Project Diversion. This one really looks like, I call that a wheelchair ramp for fish. Um, and so and it's, it's built on this big dam up here. And then this last one here is a passive, that's a passive, uh, that one we just finished is a passive structure. The fish swim up through these baffles here and we have a similar kind of thing going on right here. And so now fish can access all of those areas. Um, and we have just a, we have one more fish screen pa uh, project to do in Utah in the Green River, and we'll have completed those capital projects. Um, another, a third element of recovery is managing non-native fishes, and this really is currently our greatest challenge. Um, of only 13 of 60 fish species in the river are native. To, to the Colorado River Basin. Others have been introduced by humans. And, you know, we think it's really cool, smallmouth bass. Oh, didn't God make a beautiful fish? Well, we should have left it where it was in the eastern United States because it's a real problem when we bring it over to the western U.S. And recently, uh, we, we have all these kinds of non-native. We have big predators like these. We have little uh, non-native cyprinids and things like that. And they, they compete. They prey on the young endangered fish. They compete with them for food and space. And, in the last few years, we've had increasing smallmouth bass populations. We also have northern pike problems. 
Uh, hopefully this isn't too close to lunch because that grizzly picture on the bottom is I call it a pike minnow that was being digested by the, by the northern pike, uh, which is also non-native uh, there in the same photo. We'll skip that. Move on now so you don't have to stare at that too long. But um, we're trying to manage these non-native fishes. We can't eliminate all of them. I mean, you know, if, if you've worked at all with invasive species problems, you know that you just can't get rid of all those, uh, can't get rid of them all. But um, we're trying to minimize their populations to the point that the native fish get a leg up and can begin to, uh, you know, we can begin to tip that balance. Um, we've done a number of things. We've uh, installed a barrier net on a sport fishery up in Colorado so that the sport fish stay in the reservoir, don't escape down to the river. We um, have a fairly massive effort to remove things like smallmouth bass and northern pike from the river. Uh, and then we, many of those fish are taken out, of, especially in Colorado, where sport fishing is a pretty big deal. And you think we only fish for trout there, but we've got enough uh, eastern imports like myself that like to fish for smallmouth bass and northern pike, so we can't just annihilate their fishery and as much as I might like to. Um, so we're moving those fish out of the river and putting them in reservoirs where actually they're slightly more accessible to most anglers than they would be in the river. Um, and then it's additional measures to manage non-native fish. Colorado and Utah have placed regulations on non-native fish stocking. They've established very liberal uh, uh, non-native fish harvest limits. And we've got some research underway to try to better understand how the fish are getting into the river from the very, you know, what reservoirs they're coming from and, and how we can best manage them. A fourth element of recovery then is stocking endangered fish to restore depleted populations and to conserve their genetic diversity. Um, both uh, to accomplish this, we first had to undertake, undertake a number of genetic studies, of course, and then build hatcheries and as well as uh, construct or lease ponds to raise the fish in. We have four main hatchery facilities, two federal facilities, two state uh, facilities, two each in Utah and Colorado. Um, both razorback sucker and bony tail populations are depleted to the point that we have to use stocking to, re to recover them. Uh, we cannot recover those fish without stocking them. Uh, we currently stock nearly 30,000 razorback sucker uh, and nearly 16,000 bony tail each year. And you can see we raise them to a fairly good size. So that takes, usually takes a couple years to get them to that size. In evaluating our razorback sucker stocking, we're seeing a lot of good news. Um, we're finding, we're recapturing fish up to nine years after we stock them. We're finding the fish are moving among the different rivers, which is a very good sign. We're recapturing fish that are in spawning condition. We uh, have documented reproduction through capture of little larval fishes. And then we're also capturing juvenile fish, which indicates that those larval fishes are, are um, growing up. So that's, that's good news. Um, we also typically, uh, or a lot of the time, we stock these fish kind of into floodplain habitats uh, that connect to the river only part of the time to sort of give them a place to, to get started that's a little easier to live in than the river and to acclimate them that way. In the case of bony tail, we are also recapturing those fish uh, throughout the river, but we don't have the same recapture rates that we do for, uh, for razorback, and we don't find that the body condition is not as good. And so that's, you know, we basically have fairly poor survival past one year after stocking. So this is a problem we're working on solving. Um, we've been expanding our stocking efforts into some of these floodplain wetlands area, areas, similar to what we've been doing with uh, razorback, to improve their growth and survival. And then we're also doing some things uh, where we're uh, conditioning the fish to flows uh, prior to stocking to get them acclimated. Uh, so hopefully that will help us in our, in our bony tail restoration efforts. Meanwhile, we have enough pike minnow and humpback that we can monitor those. We don't expect to have to, um, to stock those in order to recover them. 
Um, so I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but let me just uh, put that under the umbrella of our research and monitoring element, which um, is really where we focused all our effort early in the program because we had to better understand what the fish needed in order to recover them. By about the mid-90s, we had reached the point where we could start doing all those on-the-ground recovery actions that I've been describing, and the program now places less emphasis on research and more uh, on these on-the-ground recovery actions, but also we've increased our monitoring efforts and, uh, and, and more focused our research so that um, we can detect the effects of the recovery actions uh, on the endangered fish populations. And so then moving to the population status of pike minnow and humpback chub, it's mixed. Uh, in the case of pike minnow in the Green River, which used to be one of our strongest populations, we saw adult abundance decrease between 2001 and 2003. Probably this is because we've had reduced rec recruitment due to expanding non-native fish populations and a lengthy drought. Um, we'll have our next three-year population estimate of this uh, estimate of this population complete this year, and so hopefully we'll have a better understanding. The good news is for that population is we have seen um, fairly high larval captures. So we think we've had really strong reproduction in both 2006 and 2007. Hopefully those fish then will begin to recruit into the population. On the other hand, over in the Colorado River, um, our pike minnow population has increased, almost doubled, uh, between 92 and, and 2005, and that's a, a, uh, reaching carrying capacity. And of course, I described to you those uh, fish passages that we put in in the Colorado River, so that's expanding the carrying capacity. So our hope is that those fish will continue to prosper and we'll have an even larger population in the Colorado River. Humpback chub, again, mixed results. Now these are small, they, where pike minnow are found kind of throughout the river systems and they migrate long distances and stuff, humpback chub are a real localized critter and they're found in these canyon bound reaches and they just, you know, we have some populations that are larger, like in, a, near the, uh, the, uh, in the Colorado River, near the border of Colorado and Utah, we have this Blackwater, Black Rocks Westwater population that seems to be doing pretty well. We have some other smaller populations that we're seeing fluctuations and some recent declines. We've got additional population estimates coming out on some of those populations this year, so hopefully we'll get a better picture. Um, this is a highly variable ecosystem, and it's, you really wish, you, you know, you could, you could track recovery by saying, okay, here's where we were when we started, now here's the population, and here it is, and oh, you yeah, hate it when that happens. Um, we'll see if all that comes back on. If it doesn't, not much is lost. Um, and so, let's see here. You got a power button? There we go. It might come back on. And so, we, we have, as I say, variable results. Um, now, if the populations do respond to our continued recovery actions and environmental conditions improve, um, we anticipate that we're actually going to achieve recovery goals in um, uh, about 5 to 12 years and start downlisting. I think it's just going to start powering up and, you know, we're not, the world will not come to an end here. Um, and we can actually consider um, removing these species from the endangered species list uh, in another 8 to 15 years. And again, that's if all goes well. Uh, we'll have to see, see how things go. Uh, certainly that's what we're on track to do and that's what all our partners uh, stay on track to do in terms of, in terms of recovery. We have very specific uh, benchmarks and things that, we, that we're trying to accomplish by, by certain dates. And so, um, so that, that's a, that keeps a partnership uh, moving together. Um, I mentioned that this, get that thing way away from me before I step on it again, um, that this program is also about managing water for human needs. And um, since 1988, the Fish and Wildlife Service has consulted on more than 1,500 water projects that have the potential, 
Ooh, try that again. The potential to deplete more than 2.2 million acre-feet from the Colorado River. Um, most of that, though, is depletions that were occurring prior to the program's inception. And so um, I think we're actually going to have some stuff back up here in a minute. Uh, and so we haven't had that much new development, and that's part of why this has been able to work. Um, and what the Fish and Wildlife Service does is we look at the recovery actions that are being implemented by this multi-agency partnership, and uh, we consider those actions and the status of the endangered fish to determine if progress towards recovery of the fish is sufficient enough to allow the recovery program to continue to provide Endangered Species Act compliance um, for water use and development. Oh, there it goes. Okay. Those slides weren't that interesting anyway. So a lot of the on-the-ground recovery actions that I've been describing um, really um, have, been, have been accomplished through an awful lot of collaboration and cooperation. And that's proved to be the more fruitful approach rather than being involved in lots of litigation and confrontation. And without that cooperation from all the program partners, we, there's just no way we could accomplish the many informidable tasks that it's taken to recover these fish. Um, I think this is going to come up. It sort of looks like it might. Basically, we've recognized that the best answers are those that we reach together. And... Um, should be there in just a second. That level of, of cooperation is extremely time-consuming, and, and you definitely have to be patient. Uh, this, is, this is not a, uh, a short-term project. It wouldn't work if we didn't genuinely believe that our success depends on our ability to work together to find solutions. Um, you ha we have to, we've had to be diligent to maintain our, our partnership in this program. Um, we've had to let go of us-versus-them mentalities. And certainly whatever success we've realized hasn't been due to just one or two people. It's really been due to this collaborative partnership, the synergy and the effort and the dedication of all those people. It's really kind of like an ecosystem. All, program all the program participants play a vital role. And um, as I said, we've had, we have concern about drought and non, uh, expanding non-native fish populations. But I think that we will recover these fish, with God's help, of course, um, we have to remember that it took a long time for them to, to reach the state that they're in, and it's going to, you know, several centuries. It's going to take a few decades to recover them. Um, it's certainly not a short-term project. But meanwhile, it's encouraging when biologists catch a uh, big Colorado pike minnow, like the one you see up here in the upper right-hand corner, captured in the Redlands Fish Passage a few years ago. And uh, that looks more like the ones that were caught historically. These are the Stewart brothers from Vernal, Utah, in the 1930s with some big pike minnow they had caught back then. And by golly, the same guys are still hanging around Vernal, Utah. And they went out, two of them, went out and helped to sample some Colorado pike minnow in the White River. And those fish, of course, were released alive to the river. Um, and you can see they were suitably impressed with the ability to catch those fish again. Um, and, and that certainly, certainly our hope is to see those, those fish recovered and to see the ecosystem restored as, as, uh, as a whole as part of our efforts. And that, uh, that concludes my presentation, and I think there might be a few minutes for questions. Yeah, a couple minutes. Okay. okay. Um, question or two? Uh, um, if, as a native of Colorado's difficulties with water, mm -hmm. lack thereof, yeah, you can bond in the plat. was that the amount of water in that river uh, is less than what's allotted out to everybody. And you make it sound like things are good, and 
Okay, so you're saying, is, is the Colorado River over-allocated, is the term that's used in the West. And, and um, it, it all depends on how you understand that. In certain parts, especially in the lower basin, it is. And that's why so much of recovery depends on the upper basin in Colorado. Because, it's, we're not, because uh, the upper basin, by law, by interstate compact, the Colorado River Compact of 1922, has to deliver a certain amount of water to the lower basin. And so that's what's going to save these fish in the upper basin. And what we have to do then, our job becomes... You know, kind of figuring out how to move water here, there, and every and around in the upper basin to keep it in the river when the fish need it the most, and also making sure people have what they need. Okay, Angela, thank you very much. Okay. So I can not trip over anything else. That was wonderful. <laughs>